If you grab your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, we're going to do part two of my Advent focus this year of 2022 on the incarnate deity. I'm excited to dive into these long-standing truths with you this morning. I've promised you that I will stretch you this morning. Uh, you'll need to listen oh so carefully to the nuances of, of my efforts to bring classic Orthodox Reformed doctrine to bear in this complex but wondrous topic of the incarnate deity, incarnation, God the Son. Look with me at the opening words of John's Gospel, Testimony of Our Lord. John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. This was our focus, my first sermon a few weeks ago on God the Son's divine nature. If you are just joining us today, you missed that sermon, I would, I would really encourage you to set aside an hour and get to our website and, and pull that podcast up and, and open your Bible and dig in for that foundational understanding of God the Son's divine nature. Um, what, a, what a blessing. What a blessing. This morning... I want to turn to God the Son's human nature and the incarnation and how both natures are full reality for Jesus at the incarnation and beyond without compromising either nature. Skip down just a few verses with me in John's Gospel, chapter 1, and look at verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word, God the Son, took on flesh and lived among us as fully man. He was given the name Jesus at his birth, which means Yahweh saves, God saves. He lived his entire life without sin. He willingly died in the place of guilty sinners like you and me. And he rose from the grave as the forerunner of resurrection unto joyful glory with the Father forevermore. And while we most specifically celebrate and remember his death and resurrection every Easter, it is his birth that we celebrate every Christmas. His arrival, his advent that we sing about every December. This is all about his incarnation. Before we dig into the depths of how we understand how Jesus takes on flesh but doesn't change, an extremely important clarity how he learns even though he knows everything, how he weeps but doesn't experience emotion, 
Let's first slow to look at the core doctrine of the incarnation as a foundation under our feet. What does incarnation mean? We get a clear understanding from today's verse, 1 John, uh, John 1, 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Incarnation is a big Latin word. The root word carne means meat. God the Son took on human flesh. Incarnation means God the Son took on meat. God who is spirit put on flesh. God the Son became flesh and dwelt among us. Hark the herald angels sing. And glory to the newborn king. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate. Deity. Jesus is the deity who took on flesh. And Jesus Christ, the eternal, invisible God, became visible when he took on flesh, being born of a virgin. Matthew 1, 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Do you see what happened there? The declaration is that God the Son would take on flesh and not just take on flesh, but live and walk and be seen among mankind on earth. God with us. Emmanuel. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1.14 the God of the universe in a body like yours and mine. It's amazing. But why does it matter so much? Why is the incarnation so important? Because we can touch flesh. We can identify with it. You can wrap your arms around it. You feel its heartbeat. And if one is looking for a sacrifice for the sins of all of God's elect then you can pierce flesh and it will bleed. You can burn it on an altar. You can nail it to a cross. It is essential we don't miss just how game-changing Jesus' arrival in the flesh is to us. The one true and eternal and all-powerful God, the Son, became real flesh, not a hologram. God was with us in the flesh. This mind-blowing truth should pierce us to our core. Why? Because if it only remains on the surface, we risk missing the magnitude of the life change this truth brings us. And then the worship for God, it stirs when we rightly understand and embrace it. Church, understand this had to happen or none of us have any hope. Jesus had to be born as a human being for several vital reasons. Quickly, 
Galatians 4, 4 and 5, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Humans are born under God's moral law, and only a human being could redeem other human beings born under the same moral law. Only Jesus could perfectly keep the law and perfectly fulfill the law, thereby redeeming his people from our disobedience. 1 John 4.10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He sent his Son. That's the incarnation. That's the gift. He died in our place and, and satisfied the wrath of God due us. Church, we have to get this. Our sin is so real. God's judgment is so real. The cross of Jesus is real. Jesus had to take on flesh because God established the necessity of shedding blood for the remissions of sins. We see this in the Old Covenant, the old Leviticus 17. We see it talked about in Hebrews 9, all throughout. The problem was the blood of animals was insufficient to be the permanent remission of, of our sin. As we're told in Hebrews 10:4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, sacrificed his human life and shed his human blood to cover our sins of all that God would save based on his grace, his sovereign gift of salvation through faith in Jesus alone. Beloved, if there's any temptation for you this Christmas to be too focused on your flesh or the flesh of another, Focus on the flesh of Jesus. The flesh that is your only hope for forgiveness and life and eternal life. Oh, how he loved us in the incarnation. This is his humiliation. Philippians 2, 6-8, though he was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When we look to God's holy word to better understand the incarnation we see God the Son humbly but fully taking on all that it is to be a man without compromising all that he is as fully divine. We're going to come back to that in a little while, but first hear me say the humanity of Christ assumed unto his person was complete and lacking nothing. His humanity was not truncated. It was not kind of. 
It was full. The only thing his flesh didn't have that all the rest of mankind has is sin. No original sin, no practiced sin. But in every other way, Jesus' flesh is flesh just like you and me. It's not Superman flesh. It's just like you and me, just without sin. When considering the fundamentals of the incarnation of Jesus, his humanity allows us to have a great comfort in the fact that God the Son relates to us in a way that angels or animals do not. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. This is a high and powerful comfort to us. Christian Jesus sympathizes with your weaknesses and your temptations that you face. Your hunger, your pain. He knows you deeply, truly. He knows what it is deeply and truly of what it is like when those closest to you hurt you, even betray you, abandon you. Jesus knows. Look with me for a moment and celebrate some of the major ways that Jesus relates to us in his humanity. Number one, he was conceived and born. Luke 1, 30 and 31, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He was conceived in the womb, the womb of Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit and not the seed of man. And then he was born that first Christmas day from her womb into our world, just like us. Luke 2, 7, she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Church, he grew and developed just like us. Luke 2, 40, the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. The favor of God was upon him. Church, in his humanity, Jesus experienced ordinary human growth and development. Luke 2, 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. As a human, Jesus grew intellectually. He grew physically, relationally. He experienced human limitations in his flesh. What does that mean? The Bible tells us Jesus hungered. Matthew 4, 2, he thirsted. John 4, 7 and 19, 28. He grew tired, John 4, 6. Church, he experienced human emotions. Jesus experienced the full range of ordinary 
non-sinful human emotions. Big, important clarity, non-sinful. Much of our emotions are very sinful. His were not. Matthew 26, 37, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. John eleven thirty five says he wept. He was presented with serious temptation. No, not baby temptation. Big. I would argue bigger than anything you and I have ever been presented with. Uh, we see that in the most famous way when Satan presents the temptations before him in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4. He was truly hungry. He had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Flesh truly vulnerable and facing great temptation. And yet did not sin. Scripture tells us elsewhere the presentation of temptations before him caused real suffering in Jesus' flesh. Hebrews 2.18, because for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. He was tortured and he died. The gospel narrative of Christ's passion, his death, his burial, highlight his humanity in the most amazing ways. Uh, they're amazing. They're amazing because God cannot die. God is eternal. God is immortal, right? But God the Son's, in God the Son's assumed humanity, he did suffer, he did die as part of his atoning work. Church, we have no hope for forgiveness from sin, no hope for atonement from sin, no hope for eternal life with God without the death of Jesus to satisfy God's wrath due sin. Romans 8, 3-4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Praise God. Amen. For the perfect and complete work of Christ on our behalf, he is truly our royal redeemer, the Savior of our souls. With all that now under our belt and all the tension that's been building with the, the understanding of his divinity and his humanity, two big questions to answer this morning, best I can. 
if God the Son is divine, as we studied in Sermon 1, if he is truly and fully immutable, impassable, ase, eternal, then how is he also limited, growing, struggling, full of emotion, and able to die? If God is free from all composition and devoid of all potential, therefore complete, if he is pure and holy, if he is unmoved and never altered, how do all these characteristics of his full and true humanity play out without compromising his divinity? And or how are they to be understood? To begin to understand this wondrous mystery to the degree we can, look with me at our historic Baptist confession, chapter 8, section 2. As I read this, listen carefully to these historic truths about who God is and not what we think God to be, but what the Holy Word teaches us about who he is, this is a synopsis of that teaching. The Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, is truly and eternally God. He is the brightness of the Father's glory, the same in substance and equal with him. He made the world and sustains and governs everything he has made. When the fullness of time came, he took upon himself human nature with all the essential properties and common weaknesses of it, but without sin. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The Holy Spirit came down upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadowed her. Thus, he was born of a woman from the tribe of Judah, a descendant of Abraham and David, in fulfillment of the scriptures. Two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person. Without converting one into the other or mixing them together, to produce a different or blended nature. This person is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and humanity. When we say the second person of the Holy Trinity, God the Son, is truly and eternally God, we are confirming that all that is said in the Historic Baptist Confession, chapter 2. I just read you chapter 8, chapter 2, section 1 and 2. Hear this. The Lord our God is one, the only living and true God. He is self-existent and infinite in being and perfection. His essence cannot be understood by anyone but Him. He is a perfectly pure spirit, he is invisible and has no body, parts, or changeable emotions. He alone has immortality, 
dwelling in light that no one can approach. He is unchangeable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, in every way, infinite, absolutely holy, perfectly wise, holy, free, completely absolute. He works all things according to the counsel of his own unchangeable and completely righteous will for his own glory. He is most loving, gracious, merciful, and patient. He overflows with goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. He rewards those who seek him diligently. At the same time, he is perfectly just and terrifying in his judgments. He hates all sin and will certainly not clear the guilty. Section 2. God has all life, glory, goodness, and blessedness in and of himself. He alone is all-sufficient in himself. He does not need any creature. He has not made, he has made, nor does he derive any glory from them. Instead, he demonstrates his own glory in them, by them, to them, and upon them. He alone is the source of all being, and everything is from him, through him, and to him. He is absolute sovereign rule over all creatures to act through them, for them, or upon them as he pleases. In his sight, everything is open and visible. His knowledge is infinite and infallible. It does not depend upon any creature. So for him, nothing is contingent or uncertain. He's absolutely holy in all his plans, in all his works, in all his commands. Angels and human beings owe to him all the worship, service, and obedience that creatures owe to the Creator and whatever else he is pleased to require of them. These are the historic, long-standing, orthodox, classic truths of God. What this means is we must think about the incarnation and the hypostatic union of Jesus two natures correctly and not turn them into something that are not biblical, even if that's hard. We must have a different way to think about these things, the way that God has set forth and not the way that is limited to our reasoning or preferences. Understand this, when Scripture speaks of God the Son taking on flesh, taking on mankind's nature, it cannot mean that he surrenders the fullness of the state of his divine being, for if he does, he ceases to be eternally God. This cannot be in any way. James Dozal said it well to a group of us recently. It is God who is incarnate, not an artist formerly known as God. I'm going I'm to try to help us pick at a couple important clarities this morning that without this kind of study, 
we probably have assumed or landed or spoken about it or thought about it wrong. And in that, I hope that the word blesses us to know him rightly and more fully. Now, while that statement is super funny, it's absolutely important. We cannot say that God the Son was one way in eternity and then another way in creation. For that would mean that he changed. He cannot and does not change. Augustine of Hippo says it this way, But the word of God, the only begotten Son, always lives unchangeably with his Father. He neither decreases because his abiding presence is not lessened, nor does he advance because his perfection is not increased. Protestant reformer Peter Martyr Vermigli says it this way, the word of God was equally perfect both before the incarnation and after the assumption of his humanity. The classical, historic, orthodox Christian view that we hold to is that God the Son did not go or undergo any kind of change in the incarnation. That said, many modern views have said or reasoned otherwise, saying that a real incarnation requires some kind of change or alteration in God the Son. Even our own casual reading of the text can, can, in our flesh, lead us to draw conclusions that follow this problematic line of thinking. German theologian Gottfried Tomisius, who represents the view contrary to the classic view that your elders hold and that I'm trying to teach you today, he once said this, because this is contrary to what we believe, speaking about God the Son and his divine attributes in the Incarnation. Quote, he renounces them in holy love in order to be able to experience in truth a human a humanly natural life, a life in the flesh to redeem us. During this stage, he is thus no almighty, no all-present, all-knowing man, and what is more, he is not because he wills not to be. What Godfrey and those who are like him are reasoning to say is that Christ must have changed or adapted or withheld something in his divine if he did indeed experience a true and authentic human life. The scriptures that those who represent this progressive position might try to use to make their point is passages like 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. They would reason, you can't suffer unto death if you are at the same time upholding all things by the word of your power, as Hebrews teaches. But church, he does. He does. 
Jesus does die for our sins, and he does uphold all things by the word of his power. He does this in such a way, as another theologian put it, the two natures of Christ Jesus are united in his person without confusion or change, but also without division or separation. To emphasize the deity of Christ in no way diminishes his humanity. And to highlight his humanity in no way detracts from his deity. The properties of each nature retain their own integrity, even in their union in the singular person of the Son. So many will wrongly interpret popular passages like, let me me take you to the places where we can get tripped up, Philippians 2, 5 through 7. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Emptied himself. Doesn't mean here he lost something that he was. Like he humbly gave up or put it on a shelf this portion of his divinity. This, that cannot be. Scripture doesn't let us go there. Scripture interpreting Scripture helps us to understand what emptied himself means here. It is talking about the humility of God, the Son, to assume to himself the limitations of the flesh. Is referencing his accommodation, what we refer to as his humiliation, his sacrificial love to take on all that would come with fleshly life in humanity. What we have to see in Jesus' incarnation is something that's like nothing else. So you don't have something else to compare it to. It doesn't relate because no one is like God. See, that's the place where mankind constantly trips. We want to reason God, who's like no one else, into our boxes. And we can't do that. Not if we're going to understand him biblically. While Jesus is so very relatable in his humanity, he is utterly set apart in the reality of having two natures but being one person. John Owen, famous, historic, reformed, theologian, pastor, scholar, John Owen said it this way, the second thing wherein we may behold the glory of Christ given him of his Father is in the mysterious constitution of his person, as he is God and man in one and the same person. There are in him, in his one single individual person, two distinct natures, the one eternal, infinite, immense, almighty, the form and essence of God, the other having a beginning in time, finite, limited, confined unto a certain place, which is our nature, which he took on him when he was made flesh and dwelt among us. 
Historic Baptist Confession, chapter 8, 7. In his work of mediation, Christ acts according to both natures. By each nature, doing what is appropriate to itself. So, even so, because of the unity of the person, that which is appropriate, that which is appropriate to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person under the designation of the other nature. With this in view, let's consider for a moment the doctrine of the hypostatic union, a very important doctrine that is all of this. Hypostatic union. Jesus Christ, eternal, fully divine nature, being united to his fully human nature at his incarnation. These two natures are not mixed, confused, or changed, but are united without loss of separate identity, and they are inseparable. At the incarnation, true God and true man are eternally united in one person, second person of the Trinity. The properties Concur in one person. Each nature does which is proper to itself. Because of the unity of the person, that which is appropriate to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person under the designation of the other nature. But this does not mean that they compromise what belongs only to one nature and not the other. Thomas Aquinas once said it well. Christ is one person subsisting in two natures, the human and the divine. Hence, he can be described by names being drawn from either nature. That's key. Furthermore, no matter what the name by which he is designated, it can be predicated of him because there is one person underlying both natures. Consequently, we can say that the man created the stars and the Lord of glory was crucified. However, it was not as a man that he created the stars, but as God nor was it as God that he was crucified, but as man. I hope you follow that. That is so key. Further, we all agree that this hypostatic union is necessary to our salvation. All right, I told you I'm going to stretch you this morning. We're just warming up. What we must understand is that God the Son did not add something he didn't have and he did not lose something he already had in the incarnation. The careful word that classic theologians try to use to be most helpful to this is the word assumed. God the Son assumed to his person a human nature. 
Scripture says he took on a human nature, took on a role that did not change who he is. He did not add to himself. There's a technical reality of the difference between adding and assuming that is nuanced here and so important. It is in these careful nuances of thinking and speaking that we are careful to understand or say what Jesus did or did not do without betraying his full divinity and his full humanity. Let me give you some examples of how we see this play out. Let's bring it down. When considering passages in Scripture that describe Jesus' descent, his coming down, or as we love to speak about it at the Advent, his arrival in the flesh. Major thing we celebrate in the Advent. We must think rightly about it, Okay. John 3, 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. John 16, 28, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. We can't say that Jesus, who is omnipresent, deserted one location and relocated to another. Why? Because he's omnipresent. We can say, I'm sorry, we can't say he was once in heaven and then was on earth and now is back in heaven because God is not spatial. He's not limited to time or space. He is omnipresent. Jeremiah 23, 23 through 24 I am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? So while his human flesh is spatial, watch this, only able to be in one place at one time, true human, The person of God the Son is not spatial, so we must not think of the person of Jesus as being absent from us right now. He's not far away. He is more close than we really know how to fathom. Amen? This is because he is God. He did not set down his godness to incarnate. He is omnipresent. That is an unchanging reality of the person of God the Son. He is with us all the time in and every way. Praise the Lord. Now, in the Advent, in his incarnation, God was with us in a different way, in a fleshly way, in a visible way. These are all the ways Scripture speaks about this. This is why we celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. We also understand that Jesus' human flesh is not with us now as he has ascended to the right hand of the Father and we understand that he will return bodily again one day according to his perfect will and time. This is true. We cannot see him physically now 
but we will one day. Praise God. This is true. But it does not mean he is not present as he always has been and always will be. While we acknowledge the reality of the work of the human nature and how it is different than the divine nature, we must not divide God the Son into two different persons or ascribe to him two different personalities, for he is one person with two natures. Now, does this easily compute in our minds? No. It doesn't. But that doesn't make it less true. Again, God needs to inform us. We need to submit ourselves to him. We have to be willing to think differently about wondrous realities, about the hypostatic union of Jesus. So how does God the Son incarnate? He does not incarnate by departure and relocation, thereby meaning what was is no longer. No, no. How does God the Son incarnate? He does not leave heaven. Now listen carefully. But instead, he takes that which is created into personal union with himself. The assumption of his human nature and flesh is the mechanism of his descent. Let me say that again. The assumption, his assuming a human nature and flesh, is the mechanism of his descent. John Calvin says it this way in his Institutes, famous Institutes. And I hope by quoting so many historic giants, you're seeing that we haven't like, met some weird dude in a back alley and come up with all this stuff, right? John Calvin says in his Institutes, For even if the word in his immeasurable essence united with the nature of man into one person, we do not imagine that he was confined therein. Here is something marvelous. The Son of God descended from heaven in such a way that without leaving heaven, he willed to be born in the virgin's womb, to go about the earth, to hang upon the cross, yet he continuously filled the world even as he had done from the beginning. Amazing. Let me give you another example. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. What a fabulous verse gospel reality for us who believe in him. We have to be so careful, though, how we read a text like this so we do not proclaim a change in the changeless God that is not true. Again, James Dozal helps us here when he says it well this way. When it says that though he was rich, 
This is not saying past tense. Like he ceased to be rich. For us who are temporal, immutable, when we become poor, we cannot also be rich. But God, who is immutable, so when he becomes poor, it doesn't mean that he is also not at the same time rich. In Christ's incarnation, he is rich and poor at the same time, just not in the same respect. In every way he was rich, he remains immutably rich, but that while remaining what he was, he took to himself a state of humiliation and lowliness and servanthood and was what he was not through the mystery of the hypostatic union. This is because a right understanding of the hypostatic union, fully God and fully man, does not require that God divest, give up something, surrender, any degree of power or knowledge or presence, so also it does not require that he divest himself of riches. He was rich, as we look at the original text, as a present active participle. It actually comes after the declaration of his poverty in the original text. So we could say it this way, maybe to better hear its meaning. He, who for our sake became poor, being rich, that through his poverty we might become rich. We lose the way that Jesus enriches us through the incarnation if you demand that Jesus had to leave his riches behind. This is not saying in one moment he was rich and then in another moment he's not. John Gill, another historic Baptist theologian we love, says it this way, The grace of our Lord Jesus is well known, who though rich in his divine person, became poor in his human nature to make his people rich. This is good news to us, church. Now listen carefully here. Because Jesus is rich and takes on our poverty, therefore we who are poor are given his riches. This is the great exchange he makes on our behalf. This is only possible because he, watch this, brings his eternal riches with him and doesn't leave them behind. Amen? God the Son assumed to himself a human nature. He did not add or lose anything. John Gilligan says it this way. By the incarnation, nothing is added to or altered in the divine nature and personality of Christ. The human nature adds nothing to either of them. They remain the same they ever were. Christ was as much a divine person before his incarnation as he is since. The union of the human nature to the divine is to it as subsisting in the person of the Son of God. So it is always to be understood whenever we speak of the union of the human nature to the divine nature, it is not untied to the divine nature, simply considered or as 
that is common to the three persons, for then each would be incarnate. But as it has particular subsistence in the person of the Son of God, and so the human nature has its subsistence in his person and has a glory and excellency given it, but that gives nothing at all to the nature and person of the divine word, the Son of God. But as other scriptures explain it, God, the Word, or Son, was made and became manifest in the flesh. The Son that was in the bosom of the Father, the Word of life, that was with Him from all eternity, was manifested in the flesh in time to the sons of men, and that in order to take away sin and destroy the works of the devil. At a recent conference, your pastor's and some other dear brothers attended this fall. Uh, James Dozal said it this way in a helpful way, when asking and answering. Now, try to follow me here. Again, I want to try to bring this down. What gets in the incarnation? The human nature gets... God's dignity and honor and riches. The person of God the Son gets nothing because he lacks nothing. He takes our poverty to himself, but this is not addition, it is rather an assumption. God the Son, Jesus, is true and fully God and true and fully man in the incarnation. Listen carefully. The divine person of God the Son, the person, terminates the human nature. The, the who, the who, that is born of Mary is uncreated. That's the divine nature. Tracking the who. The what, the what that is conceived in Mary's womb is created. That's the human nature. An uncreated person is born of Mary by virtue of a created nature that he takes into personal union with himself. The hypostatic union does not require the divine person loses or gains anything, but only that he supplied the personhood to the rational nature for its subsistence, for its existence. The incarnation is not something the Son gets or acquires, but it is the giving of His personhood to a human nature, thereby a concrete human. What is unique to us is that this does not require that God the Son make a change or add to himself anything. 
Again, understand this fundamental point. God the Son, person, second person of the Holy Trinity, eternal, all and fully God, God the Son, gains and loses nothing. For he is eternally complete and lacking nothing, but he gives abundantly. The one who gains is us. Those whom he came to substitute himself for and save, those who have nothing to offer in and over ourselves for salvation or righteousness, we gain. One more thing. The one who loses is Satan, whose works Jesus came to destroy. The human nature is assumed by the divine person. So let's test it. Can we say God died on the cross? Yes, we can say this because of who died. Can we say God became a man? Yes, because of who was incarnated. The incarnation is so absolutely glorious because of who took on flesh. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. There is so much to praise God for in his perfect plan to send God the Son to take on flesh, to assume to himself a human nature, to live and die and rise so that we can be reconciled to him forever so that we have a high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses and at the same time reigns perfectly over all things. Amen? This is the glory of the incarnation, the wonder of the hypostatic union of Jesus' two natures, the perfection of the will of God and the only hope mankind has for salvation and eternal life. Church, it is our hope in these two sermons this Advent on the incarnate deity that you are being boggled. In good ways. In good ways that upset the rhythm of a mundane way we look at these things. A, a, a boring, a truncated, a, a dismissed way we celebrate Christmas. Church, let's be boggled in a way where we're stirred with faith, with submission. Live for him to die to self and live to Christ and worship him. I pray, I've been praying that your understanding would be expanded. It's going to take time, that's okay. 
but that that would equal a depth to your worship. As we hail the incarnate deity, we have a better view of the absolute beauty and wonder and power of God to do this for our good and for his glory. As we celebrate the lowborn King of Kings this Christmas, may the depths of these truths cause us to well up with worship for Christ, our Redeemer. Amen? Let's pray, and then let's sing about these glorious truths of God. Father, we are humbled and excited, I hope, to to be corrected, to be refined, to be boggled, to, to not be so comfortable with that which is gloriously complex, but that there would be a right awe in us, wonder, a right amount of faith, to not demand that we understand it all and have it all in view, but faith to trust you who does. Faith to submit our reasoning, to surrender our so often failed reasoning and logic, to submit it to Holy Scripture. That your truths would direct our thinking, our, our understanding, and therefore our worship, and our living. And our, and our repenting, and our, and our sanctifying, and our, and our serving and testifying of you. You are complete. You, you get nothing you didn't have. You gave so much. We got so much. Praise you, Lord. For those outside of faith, bring them to saving faith, to fall on their faces before the one true God and confess their sin and die to themselves, to live for Christ every day, every day, every day for your glory. We love you and we worship you now with united voice for your glory and fame. In Jesus' mighty name we pray.